0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church.
1: Our sermon text today is Luke chapter 6, verse 17 onwards. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And he came down with them, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said Blessed are you who are poor For yours is the kingdom of God Blessed are you who are hungry now For you shall be satisfied Blessed are you who weep now For you shall laugh Blessed are you when people hate you And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Jesus said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So what Jesus describes is an impossibility. Not an improbability (laughs) or a magic trick, but an impossibility. These are unnerving words for most of us who live in America in the 21st century. What hope can we have that God will do the impossible in us? Let's seek the Lord together. Father, miracle worker, we pray, seek you now. I seek your face now and ask for you to do miracles in this room. We go here, we go to you, because where else will we go? There is no academic center, there is no hospital, there's no precious metal mine or bank vault in which we can find what we need the most for our souls that we might enter the kingdom of God. So I pray for you to do miracles in us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're continuing in our, our series on Luke. If you've been here, you know that's where we've been. I'm a context guy. I can't help it. And um, so please bear with me. Hopefully this will be helpful. Keep these things in mind. Just a few things to understand about Luke. This gospel of Luke that we're reading as we continue on in the coming weeks. Luke is a companion of Paul. Paul. Luke wasn't one of the apostles himself, but was very close to the the Apostle Paul with him and many of the things we have in Scripture as as his own eyewitness. Luke is precise, he's careful, he's detailed. His Greek is superb as an educated person. It might be even a bit ironic because Luke would have likely been a person of means, not speaking from poverty, but someone who was educated he speaks as one who is educated and probably has resources. He speaks with a burden particularly to the Gentile converts. Most likely himself a Gentile convert. He has a place for the dis- disenfranchised. A place for the poor. Prominence for women. It's a, it's a gospel of praise. There's a lot of praise in Luke's gospel. It's wonderful. In fact, often he'll say as they go along, praising God. Praising God they such and such. Praising God they this and so forth. It's a gospel of prayer. Prayer is very prominent in Luke's gospel. Prayer to the one who does miracles. It's a gospel for all peoples. Luke has in view all peoples the peoples of the world, that they would know the gospel, that they would know Jesus, that this this gospel message wouldn't be a tribal message, but it's now to the ends of the earth to all peoples. For Luke, the love of God is wide and it is deep. The wide, wide, deep, deep love of God in the gospel. That's, That's kind of where Luke's coming from. Of course, we understand that the scriptures are... Pend as the Holy Spirit carries the authors along. So don't get too distracted with who Luke is, because though we see Luke and his personality is not set to the side, he's not a machine, at the same time, this is the Holy Spirit. We have what we have because of God's goodness to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The context flow here um, we see parallel in Luke and Matthew, a lot of parallel. So we've, we, we have um, seen and heard the preaching on Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Luke's temptation and victory over the devil. I just want you to know what's happening right before this. Then Jesus begins his public ministry. It says in Luke four fourteen, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Matthew four seventeen, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus as we enter into our text today, Jesus' popularity and polarity has grown. He's, his name is known wide. And, and in fact, last week we heard from Pastor Kenny the account of Jesus calling his disciples, the particular disciples to him, for the particular ministry of apostleship. Just before that... Jesus heals a man, and it says that the scribes and the Pharisees, what what would it be like for you? You you witness the healing, the supernatural healing of someone. Some of us have, have witnessed these things. What is your response? The response of the scribes and the Pharisees is they are furious. They are furious that this man is doing this and getting this attention. So, and yet the crowds come to him. The fame, it didn't take very long. (laughs) Tempted by the devil, starts his ministry of preaching, people are healed, and man, the word has spread like wildfire. No social networking, no telephones, no texting, and everybody knows about this, and they're coming from all over the place, and that leads us to the sermon on the plain, and Just in case it's a question you have, it's a natural question. There's a parallel account, it seems, in Matthew 5. Matthew 5's Sermon on the Mount is longer and has more detail than what we have here in Luke 6. And it it prompts the natural question, are these the same or not? Um, I'm going to give you the, the best answer, I think, to that is it really doesn't matter. Because both sermons, whether they're the same or not, are the content of the preaching that Jesus did. And this sermon surely was longer. You know, when we get up here to preach, um, we are conscious of the time. And there's a lot of thing, little quips that people send. You know, if people stop losing it, they don't pay any attention after 20 minutes. Somebody will send you that. You know, 40 minutes? I mean, do we really have to, you know, I don't know. I don't know. People are different. But I will tell you this. You can read the whole of the Sermon on the Mount in about seven minutes. I think Jesus had more to say than that in that moment. <laughs> and beyond that, Jesus went everywhere preaching these things. So the Sermon on the Plain could be a, could be a different account or it could just be they, they were up on the mount with the disciples. They come to a flat spot on the mountain and they gather there. Doesn't, doesn't really matter. In any case... What is preached by Jesus is absolutely revolutionary. It is a turning on its head the values of the day and of our day. I think that the because we're familiar with these words, most of us we, they, we can get we can get used to them, sensitized to them, inoculated to them. It's it's just like yeah 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 the, the uh, blessed of the poor. Da, 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 da. It's good for us to remember that, that what he is saying here is revolutionary. It is dramatic. We see, in fact, in fact, one has, some have, in an attempt to summarize what, what do we have here, some have said, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, this content is the Christian manifesto. This is the expression of what the kingdom looks like. What it looks like for people to live in kingdom hope, with kingdom ethic, with kingdom values. And it turns on its head the the values that we tend to have, the values of our culture. So let's look at specifically the text here. Jesus is addressing the crowds, or it says his disciples, but what? it is a, a question. What does that mean? Is he speaking to his newly appointed apostles or is he speaking to the crowd? Again, I don't think we have to be precise on this question. I think he is speaking to all, but I think that he also has, a. this is particularly for his apostles. Like he's speaking to the crowd, but his apostles are gonna c- carry this kingdom message forward. They're going, they are going to be Commissioned to carry the gospel forward. They need to have an understanding of the Christian value, the Christian kingdom, the kingdom of God. How does it work? What's important? What's not important? So he's preaching to this crowd with his disciples there. I think each, each lesson is particularly important for them. And of course, Jesus's notoriety. Has grown to the point that people all over are coming to him. Just sort of a parenthesis. I can't help this in my mind. I, 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 I sort of place myself in the context. I wonder was there a VIP section? The crowd comes, they're kind of all getting up to Jesus, and then there's kind of a make way, make way. And here come the important people, and they get to sit. I've never been to a, a VI, in a VIP section. I've, I've been to one concert at US Bank Stadium. It was free tickets given to my wife. We were in the second to the last row. I was so tired when I got to the top. I took a nap. My wife and I and some friends went to see a play on Hennepin Avenue a couple weeks ago. We could not see the faces of the people (laughs) in the play, which it turns out that kind of matters if you want to really get it. VIP section, the scribes and Pharisees maybe, other rich people with their people fanning them and they got a little seat. Imagine that. And then Jesus says these things as the poor people, the common people, the dirty people are all scattered about. And then he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. And in the VIP section, are they, what are they eating? People bringing them food. Jesus looks right past them. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil in the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then, I don't know if there was a VIP section, but I suspect there were some some people of means. And then he addresses them, and woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. The contrast between blessed and woe could not be more stark. We must not water it down. We we must be honest. To be blessed, the way Jesus is speaking, is to be loved by God, is to be saved by God, is to be embraced by God, is to be favored by God. And woe is to be cursed. Woe is to be damned. Woe is to be condemned forever. This this is not light language. This is not the red team and the blue team. This is not those who are kind of unfortunate, but those who are kind of have good things. This is as strong as it gets. So in summary, those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted are blessed, and those who are rich, full, laughing, and admired are cursed. What are we to do with this, friends, as we sit in this nice room, in this conditioned air? I don't think anyone's going to fall over from starvation. I know I'm not. What are we to do with this? Natural questions come to mind. Who are the rich? How much money do you have to be to have to be considered rich? My guess is if we surveyed this congregation, most would say, I'm not really either. I'm not really poor, I'm not really rich. But I don't think that Jesus has a third category here. Where does that put you? Where does that put me? What if I have plenty to eat? Should I fast more so I can feel more hungry? I like to laugh. I laugh a lot with my friends. Should I try to be more serious? Someone says something funny and I <clears throat> <laughs> because I want to be the blessed? Are we supposed to have Aren't we supposed to have a good reputation as Christians? How do I have a good reputation and show evidence of persecution? These are natural questions. What do we do about this? First of all, what I want to be real about what the Bible says about poverty and about the poor. Let's, let's not start with our yabbits. You might think that's a Yiddish word. It's not. It's just a word and what we do to kind of provide a, an excuse. Well, you won the race. Yeah, but you had a head start. So we don't want to say initially, well, he, yeah, yeah, but that's not what he really means. Let's start with being honest and looking at what the Bible says of the place and the prominence of the poor in the Bible. There's over 200 Old Testament references to the poor. The poor are not a side thought. They're not an afterthought. Paul reports the apostle's confirmation to his ministry to the Gentiles and the exhortation in Galatians 2 to remember the poor. Jesus said that we will always have the poor with us. So no social plan, no redistribution of wealth, no ministry program will eradicate poverty. And still, we are to engage poverty with gospel, hope, and love. Ask Jeff Noyad, one of our deacons who leads Jericho Road, if he thinks he's going to work himself out of a job. Who are the poor? Not just the poor for poor decisions. Now, now I'm going to say a couple things here. Some of you are not going to like this. It's okay. Email me is fine. Ken.curry at Bethlehem.church. but I would go ahead and, and buckle up your seatbelt, your emotional seatbelt here for a minute. The poor are not just poor for poor decisions. They are though, they're, having, they're, they're described as those who have nothing or very little and are victims of injustice. Proverbs thirteen twenty three. the fallow ground of the poor, hear this, okay, let's track with me. The fallow ground of the poor, it's like the good ground of the poor, would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. It's not that they don't work hard. It's because of injustice that their fallow ground does not yield. Tim Keller says that the gospel works in the hearts of Christians such that we know, we love, and we become poor. The biblical response to the poor is. Here's a verse. In in Proverbs 14, 21 and 31, here's what they say. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. It doesn't say he insults the poor man, but surely he does. Whoever insults, who oppresses the poor insults his maker insults God to oppress the poor. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Now I said the biblical response to the poor is and I paused because that word in the SV, generous in Proverbs 14, 21 and 31 is, it's different in all the major translations. Some have it as mercy. Some have it as grace. Some have it as kindness. And some have it as generous. And I look at that and what What impacts me is that God has the best word, the best of our words. What are our best words? (laughs) Grace, generosity, mercy, kindness. You know who gets those words? The poor. That's how we're to act. The Christian understands it is not just a matter of individual sin and choices, But the world is broken and poverty exists because people live in a fallen world where things are not as they ought to be. And we are called to it. To know, to love, and to become poor. Now, if you had your emotional seatbelt buckled, you could probably loosen it just a little bit. Because I do want to acknowledge and talk the rest of the time about the fuller picture. Now that we've been honest about the reality of poverty and the biblical truth regarding the poor, where do we go from here? Well, in our text, there are not eight groups of people. There's not those who are poor and those who are rich, those who are hungry and those who are not hungry, etc., etc. There's two groups of people. There's one group who is poor, and they're hungry, and they're oppressed, and they weep. And there's a group who are rich, and they're full, and they laugh, and they have a good reputation. There's two groups of people, and this is how they're characterized. If you are poor, obviously you are hungry. And if you are hungry, you weep. I don't know how many of us in this room have ever truly been hungry I don't think I can say I've ever truly been hungry. But when I am hungry the way I use hungry, I'm not a, a nice person to be around. So imagine you the gnawing hunger, the emptiness, and the lack of knowledge of where your meal will come from. That person weeps. And that person is not popular. They're not invited to the good parties. And if that person identifies with Jesus... They are as cast out as cast out can be. Yes, there is more to the poverty that Jesus speaks of than merely the lack of resources. Yes, Matthew's description of poor in spirit in Matthew 5 goes deeper to the ultimate issue. In fact, look at the explanation of the condemnation of the rich in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The issue... Is that they, not that they are rich. The issue is that they have received their consolation. It it is not simply that they have wealth, but that they are looking to it for their hope, joy, identity, and ultimately, yes, their salvation. Like a consolation prize. I don't, do you know what that is? You know what that is? Like some of the younger people might not have heard of that. Us folks, my generation, you know, it's, it's how you try to make people feel better for losing, and 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 in fact, it's like worse. It's like a heaping on of the loss. You know, when my kids played a lot of sports growing up, and and it seems that from the time that they could take solid food, they wanted to win and they knew who won. So they were, we'd play in some of those leagues, you know, initially where they don't keep score. Nah, you know four years old dad who won I don't really know son they won't really know it was 19 to 3 we won (laughs) well it doesn't really yes it does there's no point in going there a consolation prize is a prize which isn't really a prize at all it's worse than nothing it's a constant reminder that you didn't even win the prize so for a rich person the consolation they have all of it already William Barclay says this, if you set your heart and bend your whole energies to obtain things which the world values, you will get them, but that is all you will ever get. So what do we have here? I would say that this is a middle-class church. I don't mean that we don't have a few folks who have exceptional means and that we don't have some folks who might be really struggling to make ends meet, even their housing and their food. But as a whole, we're not a poor church and we're not a rich church in terms of current economic terms. Have you ever been to a, a poor church or a rich church that you would call? In India, we, we worshiped in some poor churches. We worshiped in a church where everyone sat on the floor. I think you would have laughed to see us Americans when we realized we got, we're gonna sit on the floor we, we worshiped in another church, which was basically a storage unit, with cinder block walls. They pushed back the metal doors, and then there was dirt on the floor and no air conditioning and no nothing but this cinder block room, and that was church. I've been to churches where they have like water slides and Starbucks in the church. Been in one of those churches? So I don't think we're really either of those. We're kind of a middle class church, which means... The greatest threat to the gospel for us is middle-class religion. What is that, what do I mean by that? Middle-class values, which include hard work, earning it, being respectful and polite and nice. And all these things are fine as far as they go, but they cannot save you. They cannot save you. You cannot be a Christian if you're middle class in your spirit. If you find your identity, your hope, your satisfaction in your bank account with its comfortable balance, you are under a curse and have received your consolation and have no inheritance in God. If you find your identity, your hope, your satisfaction in your things, your food, your hobbies, your grill you have received your consolation and you will suffer the emptiness of hell forever. If you find your identity, your hope, your satisfaction in your friends with whom you laugh and you ignore your own plight and the plight of your friends and the plight of the world, you have received your consolation and you have no peace with God. If you find your identity in your profession, your competence, your reputation, you've received your consolation in full and will only be cast out from the love, acceptance, and affirmation of God forever. So when we look at these texts, we see that middle-class religion can only condemn. If you're middle-class in spirit, you might love religion, but you can't be saved. Only, the only people who hear the gospel are the poor in spirit. You can't hear the gospel without being poor in spirit, without recognizing I have nothing. Religion says try hard, live nobly, give to the poor, even give to the poor. Be nice. The religious person says I can do it. The gospel says no one is good, not even one. Even my best deeds are like filthy rags before him. I shared with our young adult group when I had the privilege of their retreat this illustration. I'm going to do a version of that. Um, So I had these, I had this memory before by God's grace he exploded my categories of what salvation and life and joy are all about. Had this memory of thinking it like a balance scale, a cosmic balance scale. If I can just do enough good things that outweigh my bad things, then I'll go to heaven. I do good things and bad things. And I think a lot of people think that way. So I have these Legos here. Now Legos seem to have, have exploded in their popularity. I don't have any of those like $300 little mini figures, just, just a few of these blocks. And let's pretend that we have a balance beam here for a moment. And on this side of the balance, balance scale, sorry. Now a balance beam that'd be dangerous. Balance scale, and on this side of the balance scale we'll put some good deeds. So give me a good deed, Terry Wintz. Give me a good deed. Uh, feeding the poor. Feeding the poor. So I go outside and I feed the poor, and I put that on my balance scale. And then I'm going to do another good deed. So Luke Bolton, give me a good deed. Mow my neighbor's lawn. And I'm doing well. Imagine we have a balance scale here, right? And my scale's tipping. But then kind of have a bad day. I'm not going to ask for one of these. That's just too, <laughs> too risky. And I know some of you too well. So I do a, I do a bad thing. I'm, I'm harsh with my wife. And, and the scale tips this way. But, and and then, and then I'm selfish. I do a real selfish thing. And then a, but then, but then I go and I, I read my Bible. And so now I'm doing OK. And as long as I die, when I'm this way, I get to go to heaven. So every time I do one of these, I get to do one of these. But that's middle- class religion. That's works. I do enough good things. I'm saved. I don't need a gospel. I don't need a savior. I just need to be. More good than I'm bad. But here's the truth of the gospel. All of our good deeds, when done to satisfy God, to gain favor with him, they go on this side. That's hard to hear, isn't it? You're telling me I can go to hell for reading my Bible? If you read your Bible to say to God, look at me, look at my righteousness, Lord. Condemnation. Look at me. I fed the poor, Lord. Accept me. Condemnation. The gospel isn't for those who have good deeds, it's for those who are poor in spirit, who have nothing to put before the Lord. The one who comes to him must know that he has nothing. I have nothing. Even my good deeds condemn me. Ah, but I want your mercy. I want your grace. The one who comes to him must know he has nothing. I have nothing. The gospel works in your heart not only to know and to love the poor, but indeed to become poor. To strip away the arrogance and the haughtiness and the self-righteousness And lay yourself bare before the Holy One to say, I have nothing. To come to Jesus is to receive a value you've never known before. You got a $5 million jet, I've got Jesus. You have a banquet in this life, I have food that will never perish living water, the love and favor, inheritance of the king of kings. The gospel is only for the spiritually poor. So all the way back to where we started, Jesus said how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus describes is an impossibility. No amount of hard work, no amount of goodness, no amount of politeness, no amount of niceness, we'll accomplish it it takes a miracle so what hope can we have that god will do the impossible for us for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich apart from the gospel of christ we are poor The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see our spiritual poverty. The gospel is that Jesus saves the spiritually poor by becoming poor to give us his riches. His cross is not cheap. His priceless blood cleanses and saves us to the uttermost. And it is for those who have come to the end of themselves. Woe to you if you are not in Christ and you die in your sins. But blessed are you if you are in Christ. Blessed is Tim Keller today to whom I owe a great debt for this sermon. And rich beyond words, blessed is Eileen Westberg, whose inheritance would make the pharaohs jealous. Blessed is Nancy Nelson, whose heavenly possession would make the crown jewels a cheap bauble by comparison. Blessed are the great cloud of witnesses, name upon name that we could say in this place, Not because in this life they had a lot, but because they knew that before the Holy One they had nothing and would come to him and open their arms and receive by grace salvation through Christ. Blessed are you if your riches are the riches of Christ. I asked Pastor Chuck if we could sing Jesus Paid It All. You know this, 90% of you know this. He says, thy strength indeed is small. I mean, if I was gonna, I, I would not presume to correct the hymn writer, so I'll go with that. But it's not just small, it's non-existent. Child of weakness, we're not just weak, we're dead. But find in him thine all in all. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. I find in you, your power and power alone can change leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. I have nothing good whereby thy grace to claim. Let's pray. God, we praise you as the God of miracles. How could a camel go through the eye of a needle? It can't. How can we save ourselves? We can't. To be saved is to be one in whom a miracle of God has worked. Blind eyes seeing, deaf ears hearing, dead hearts beating with new life, mouths that curse, that bless, mouths that are cold, warm with words of blessing. Praise you. Thank you, Jesus, that you've paid it all, that we might know you forever. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at bethlehem.church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading the passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.